John Harvey taught at Cambridge and is the prize-winning author of five acclaimed novels and four studies of color, clothes, and illustration. He has reviewed widely for The Sunday Times, The London Review of Books, and many others. Unusual in their scope and variety, his novels have tackled torture and resistance to a military dictatorship, family breakup in the world of road haulage and motor racing, and a notorious love crisis in the art world of the Victorians. In today's episode we look at the first of John Harvey's novels to be published, The Plate Shop. The darkness gave way to a brown dust, and a small face formed, the faded offering face of Marilyn Monroe. But all her gaze met, as the cold morning light advanced, was an enormous building, like an old hangar, choked to the roof with machinery. The light increased until the grimy windows of the workshop were white with sun. From dazzling points in the walls, pencils of light came in, Colours came out in the machines, which stood clear in their different shapes. An upshooting, wiry machine was all whip and gleam of tough silver threads. Beneath a soaring tree of girders sprawled a long, low, humped and curved machine, deep green, enormous, like an armour-plated creature asleep. In the girders above, a fat amber cable curled among the leads like a snake asleep among vines. And still, the faded, lovely face of Marilyn Monroe, smiling, dimly sparkling, offered herself to the empty air, to the drills and presses, and to the enormous shape that came clear in the centre of the plate shop, which just was a steel mountain, a huge, smooth cone of iron. This is morning in the steel plate workshop in the factory where I worked when I was around the age of 20, both between my gap year between school and college and in the summer holidays of college, I was able to go back to the same job there. That factory made a very deep impression on me. I've tried to give a living picture of an actual factory. Something that pleased me when it came out was that a local paper commenting on it said that it is actually, we know well that this is a description of Garrett's factory in Leaston. And this pleased me because I'd never been to Leaston and it wasn't Garrett's factory, but clearly it sounded like a real factory. So it's actually a description of uh, Miller's Machinery Company at Bishop Stortford, which is where I lived and where I worked then. It was fascinating for me to work in the factory. I didn't think then of writing a novel about it, uh, but I was write, wanting to write novels at the time factory scenes would come into those novels and at a certain point when I heard what in general happened to that factory, its fate, then it seemed to me very much that there was a very much of a story to tell about the factory where I had been working and I wanted to do that. Um, while I was working there I got to know everyone pretty well partly because of the job I had which was that I was something between an office boy and a junior clerk to 
the time study scheme. Time study schemes were then a big thing in British industry. They were supposed to uh, time every little atom of work that a person did, set a price on it, which would allow him to make a bonus. And my job was to partly to go around delivering job cards to foremen or to workers or collecting them. And this meant that almost every day and every week, this meant that I got to know everyone there. And I saw I saw everyone there lots of times. So I did feel that it gave me a knowledge of the plate shop and of the factory. Uh, the most dramatic thing I saw when I was there, I guess, was an industrial accident. Uh, and that does figure in the novel. I think it was the only serious accident while I was there. And it was the result of human carelessness that happens. There's an apprentice who'd been working with his ladder leaning on the rail of one of the overhead cranes in the workshop. And the mains electricity should have been switched off so that he could work there. It wasn't switched off. The crane came along, not I think with a heavy load, but it came along, knocked his ladder from under him. So he flung his arm to over the rail to uh, prevent himself falling. And the front of the crane sort of rode up on his arm and trapped him there. Oh. And that's the scene that uh, in the novel I'm describing really what I saw. I came in through the side door of the plate shop and saw this all happening in front of me. And uh, a particular work workman, whom I, a plater, whom I call War Boys, had already gone up a ladder and was wrenching with a crowbar to try and raise the crane from where it was weighing down on the arm of this poor kid. War Boys was slowly losing. Strain as he did, he hung further out, the crowbar rose, but the crane slipped back. There was dead silence. They heard the shriek of lathes in the machine shop across the yard. Then in the centre of the silence, Clyde roared, Oh, get your finger out, you blasted, sodded, bone-idle, useless bloody pisser. Are you so bloody weak and feeble you can't lift the bugger thing half a fucking inch? Warboy's face half showed, helpless, wide with indignation. He couldn't shout back. He lost his temper. His face clenched, went purple and seemed all jaw. He heaved, trembling, and the crane shivered on the crowbar. But it slipped no further. A new ladder arrived, and Dawson and Trigg hurried up there. They hung out on their crowbars, heaved, and the crane rose. A sigh like a breeze passed through the men below. Slowly, Clyde called, steady, steady. They brought the boy down carefully, because the ladder was steep, and they had to support his damaged arm and lower it without shock. Easy, Clyde repeated his voice descending in pitch as the boy came down. The platers pressed close, and with one motion and no bump, they received the apprentice in their arms and rested him on the stretcher. His arm was laid in a cloud cushion of cotton wool that at once soaked up scarlet. The boy lay back, his plump face white, his short pointed nose jutting up pert. He must be unconscious, but his eyes were half open looking up towards the roof of the shop. Who is Clyde? Yes, Clyde was the foreman of the plate shop 
and he was a large figure there. He's partly modelled, of course, on the real foreman of the plate shop who made a big impression and who had a wonderful name. His name was Joshua Slocum Charge. Uh, <laughs> great name, a great name for a character in a novel, but yeah. not quite the right name for the foreman of a heavy engineering workshop, it seemed <laughs> to me. So in any case, I gave him another name, more ordinary. I called him Edward Clyde. And Clyde, I suppose, comes in a bit because of the industrial associations of the River Clyde, but also really because Clyde, to me, in my sort of inner ear, didn't sound too different from Chard. I could think of him, think of that man, though it's also true that he, in the, actually he was a small man, but in the novel he gets a bigger phys physique because he is the biggest person in the place. Clyde, at this time of the day, looked more like a lorry driver in the midst of repairs than the picture of authority. His jacket would be hanging, ominous and unapproached, on some hook or lever in a remote corner of the plate shop, and he walked over to Pethick, a harassed middle-aged man, with his sleeves rolled up and his white forearms marbled with oil. His face, which in the close dusty heat of the shop looked as if it were made of red cork, was streaked and stained with black where he'd rubbed it in perplexity. His trouser pockets bulged with the thick corners of spanners, and he moved in his own light, clanking music. He didn't look like a man to move or in anyone, but the platers gathering round Pethick moved back in a wave as he arrived, and his deep voice, hoarse from shouting, reproachful, worn out beyond exhaustion, asked, What is this, Marish? Clyde is a big figure. This is partly because the foreman of a workshop is a crucial person there. He's the place where the world of management and the world of the workforce overlap, perhaps in conflict. He has a big responsibility and with age, I guess he may come to feel something like the father of the place, sometimes a tyrannical father. And it's true that as the novel got rewritten, because I do rewrite a lot, features of my father, who was not tyrannical, came into the character in, for instance, a liability for his blood to get overheated in a turmoil of different emotions. And this happens extremely in the scene where Clyde, the foreman, learns indirectly that he himself is likely to be replaced, sacked, and immediately everything in him explodes. Uh, the other man here is his clerk, Josh, who I remember very well from the factory, um, a short, overweight, red-faced man with very thick glasses, uh, through which, which made his eyes very big, and I think didn't help him to see terribly well the cards which he processed uh, every day. But uh, a more calm and steady person, Clyde, the other person in Clyde's office all day long. So I've got to go, but damn it, Josh. When I think what I've done for this blasted place, I put heart and soul into it time out of mind. They've never had such a foreman as I was. Clyde went on until he lost speech and banged on his desk so the paper towers slid, spanners and wrenches clattered down and clouds of yellow job tickets flew like leaves in a gale and settled on the grubby floor. Josh stood and with sudden power he bellowed, Mr Clyde, sit down. Confronted with this shouting Josh, Clyde stopped. Slowly, with waking worry, he sat at his desk, 
in front of his window, which looked out over the roofs of the factory, scarps, cliffs and peaks of corrugated iron, crusted with bird droppings, scabbed with rust, hold where the iron had rotted through and crumbled in brittle flakes. Josh brooded, from time to time glanced at Clyde, who sat, breathing heavily. He seemed absent, gone. But presently a string tautened in him. He sat up, and in a congested voice he said through the window, Hello, old chap. Are you getting along pretty well? Josh blinked and looked at Clyde. But presently a little tit hopped on the sill and balanced there on its delicate hairline legs while its head jerked from side to side. Clyde said, Hey, old chap, you're looking prime. Stay there, don't move. There was a rustle of paper. Clyde's hand was busy under the bench. Stealthily, he broke the crumb of his sandwich and flicked grains of bread across the sill. Then he returned to full foreman. He'd given the bird enough of his time and he made a brisk, kindly movement with his hand so the bird flew off. Clyde looked at Josh and breathed out wearily. The scrap heap. That's all I'm good for now. So does Clyde lose his job? Clyde is going to lose his job, but he's not the only person. Because what has happened, and this happened to the factory where, where I worked, though it didn't happen while I was working there. I heard about it later, partly from a relative who was also working in the factory later on. Um, what has happened is that the factory has been the subject of a takeover in the higher business universe. The factory's parent company and the factory have been bought up and everyone there is waiting to know their fate. Will the business get reinvestment, redevelopment, renewal? Will it survive and grow? Will it uh, have new jobs, better pay? Or is everything going to be sold off, flogged off for a quick sale, uh, and what's left demolished, the site sold as building land, and really for some other activity entirely. In a word, will the factory be, in the phrase that was used a lot in those years of the 60s, asset stripped? Or will there be some mixture of asset stripping and some sort of very modest renewal? The factory waits, everyone, everyone's job and fate is hanging on what may happen. Uh, they wait to know how this takeover is actually going to show itself. What is going to be the first actual visible sign of it? One morning, the first men into the works were surprised to see, beside the plate shop, a large caravan, light, silvery, shining in the dusty yard. There was nothing on it to say what it was, Oi, oi, we got the diddy coys in, a plater called. An apprentice sang out, Jip, a roadie. The caravan door was open. There were papers spread on a desk. While the plater stood there, a man behind them said, Morning, in a nondescript voice, and passed between them into the caravan. The plater stared a little, to make it clear they saw him as an interloper. Then they drew off. Everyone coming in that morning saw the caravan and wondered who was in it. Yet while the question smouldered through the works, the answer came not slowly, but like fire in a gale, so that in half an hour there was not an office girl or labourer 
who did not know that in that small caravan was the man they expected never to see, Austin Crowley, the acting head of Mackworth Crowley, their new owner. It did appear that he had brought four secretaries with him, now hidden away in an office he had commandeered. Crowley himself was based in the caravan, but was seldom there in the daytime. From bright dawn when the first day worker arrived, to smoky dust when the last man left, the caravan stood empty, and Crowley was somewhere in the works. Crowley was handsome and slim. A quiet, high expensiveness showed in his clothes. His eyes were intent, so that meeting them was like being nipped by small pincers. Then one day he walked into the plate shop, and just as though indeed he rode in enthroned on a silver chariot, while ranked executives cast rose petals before him, just so the raised arms descended, the machines faltered and stopped, a silence expanded through the shop, and all eyes turned on Crowley. Crowley seemed aware and unaware of this. He was not embarrassed. He flitted lightly up the steps into Clyde's office, and for a long time neither he nor the foreman reappeared. Only later they learned that in his few days in the factory Crowley had identified, assessed, and set a price on everything. What is a time study? Did you have to write reports? I didn't myself because, as I said, I was something between an office boy and a junior clerk. I didn't actually do the timing. The particular people were recruited, two from the white-collar division of the factory, people who'd been working in the drawing office, designing machines, and two from the shop floor. And they were trained in the expertise of the time studier which is that you're given a clipboard and a stopwatch and you go and stand beside a particular worker doing a particular job and you time, you identify each bit of the job that he does and at the end of the day, a whole time is allowed for that job and if the plater or welder or fitter does the job in a shorter time, then he gets a bonus for it. That is what time study was. And I got to know all the ins and outs of it very well, but I didn't actually, I never stood over a plater or a welder with a stopwatch. And I don't think they'd have been at all pleased to have a 20 year old kid between school and college standing over them with a stopwatch. <laughs> Anyone who saw the time study office in the late stale time of the afternoon would think the time itself had come to a standstill there. The eternity of job times and man hours were shut up into flaked and rusted filing cabinets. There were three trade calendars on the wall, but their different dates lagged months in the rear. The time studiers themselves were rapt and still. Earl and Barry were counting numbers, while Bert Cherry just sat, with his soft stoutness collapsed on itself, and the white ammonia prints spread round him like petals of a fat, pungent flower. His blue eyes never moved. Even his pipe had gone out, though he still sleepily munched it, like a baby asleep at the bottle. The fragrant, honey-sweet cloud of smoke staled round him in thinning wreaths. 
Through the thin, hardboard walls came the muffled sound of the hooter for tea break, and only then did the drowsed office stir. Dye splashed in with a tin jug of tea and a cellophane packet of biscuits for Bert Cherry. A stationary cupboard slouched when she opened it to take out the crockery and stood bolt upright with a loud tinny crash when she slammed it. Earl Kerry got out his comb and the war comic he kept in his desk. Ted the Australian said, Here, here, the little bud unfolds. As Bert Cherry sat a little up and started to screw up his face and blink. What happens next? What is the biggest story? What happens in the novel is that the factory does get taken over and heads towards a serious fate. And this affects both the person who's, in a way, the hero and central figure for me, and that is Foreman Clyde, who is the kind of a centre of all the changes that are going to occur. There's also a young person, a young time studier, who is perhaps closer to me in the novel and who is both involved but also observing what goes on. Um, The large story of what happens in the factory is that it does get taken over and a kind of big fate falls on everyone there. But it's also true that what struck me when I was working in the factory is... um, various different levels of uh, organisation, but also justice and injustice. And one of the things which made an impression on me was, which I think has become, if anything, more topical in our post-Brexit world, is the, the attitude, really, to foreign workers. Especially, I remember, an Italian and a Czech who were working in the factory. Uh, they'd been working there for years, so their English could have been very, very good. It hadn't become very, very good. Uh, it was still a bit broken and there was a distance. They were treated as not quite uh, not quite one of us. And the, one of the main scenes in the novel, it concerns a Czech, the Czech worker and the way in which he is given, he is always given the second rate job. He then Clyde capriciously gives him a first rate job which puts the nose of the pater who normally does that out of joint. So he he interferes, tries to get the job reassigned. The complications develop and Clyde gets impatient and sacks the the, uh, Czech worker, which he shouldn't have done. Uh, The case then goes to the local trade union in the the factory and the union meeting. And this is something that actually happened and made quite an impression on me, because although it was very clear that the union should have supported the Czech worker, uh, they didn't. And when they, the platers were talking about it afterwards to me, they, they, they said, well, he wasn't one of us. Oh. And that was the, the attitude. Oh. And that was visible in the, in the attitude to other uh, foreign workers there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but otherwise, uh, I, do have the, I do have a scene in the novel. Everyone is true that a lot of people in the factory are going to lose their jobs. Uh, and I do have a scene where the Czech plater, after he's been sacked, is stuck as to what to do in the daytime. Immediately, he doesn't want quite to tell his family he's got no work to go to. He does go and spend time in a pub where retired platers sit around. And I, I quite like that scene, in, I think, because I've, I, I think in the novel I have tried to get um, the way people speak in a factory or sitting around in a pub afterwards. Um, and I hope I've got a bit of the, the sound of things there.
Now the three near the fire were falling out. The gammy leg banged on the floor. His name was Hunter. I knew him. His name was Carruthers, the coldy man insisted. He was making a stand at last. His name was Hunter, thumped the gammy leg. He was a red-haired man. He had a little whippet dog. And it was his Uncle Billy that was the last man but one that was hanged up Pickett's Hill. That's right, that's right, the monkey-faced man chuckled. Little Billy Hunter got his neck stretched over a woman. The coldy man gave in. He sat blowing his nose. His eyes wept. He took defeat badly. Pethick got up and rushed from the pub. Poor old men, poor old men, he repeated, in scathing, exasperated pity. So the plate shop, like your other novel, The Subject of a Portrait, is also illustrated. Um, what can you tell us about the process of these illustrations? I was very glad that Holland House were willing to include the illustrations. I'd, I'd originally hoped it might be an illustrated novel. At the time that I was writing it, I was actually doing research on illustrated novels by Charles Dickens and other people who wrote at a time when novels had pictures in them. And the pictures were important because the pictures were a sort of advertisement of what each next issue, because novels came out then in monthly parts, what each next issue would show. I wanted to have pictures. Also, I'd drawn a lot. As a kid, I drew. I then produced science fiction picture strips, which will crop up in, in another novel. And later I moved on to illustrations to Tolkien, and Tolkien was a new and dramatic thing then. It may be even that the way in which Tolkien describes his evil land of Mordor with iron towers and a lot of fire and volcanic activity and so on, itself reminds me perhaps now a bit of the factory landscape and foundries and the whole world of steel and molten steel and flakes of molten steel um, flying around as the, uh, the liquid steel pours out of the, out of the foundry. But factories are very dramatic things visually and film mm. has taken advantage of that. I loved that side of it. I'm, on one hand, I loved getting to know the types and characters in the factory. On the other, on the other side, I really liked the spectacle of the whole place, of the old heavy engineering. And both when I was, well, not so much when I was working there, but later I did uh, drive around doing drawings and sort of little colour studies of factories. I drove around uh, the black country, looking at different old factories and so on. Some of those drawings are now reproduced as illustrations in this new edition of the plate shop. Other studies were specially prepared from scenes that I'd seen and the accident that I mentioned earlier and which we heard a bit of, that what actually what I saw when I came into the plate shop shows in that illustration, which is the big illustration before what the first section, which is called day one, begins. And that is what I saw as I came in through the side door, the side door of, of the plate shop. The day two was a different picture. It shows an enormous, what was called a way hopper, a gigantic conical funnel, which would be used on a building site to, uh, for, to hold, to let sand or some other powdery material be paid out 
to the machines down below. A, a gigantic hopper is being lifted out of the plate chopper onto a giant lorry, which will take it to some suitable um, industrial uh, location. Um, and everyone, that was something else that I remembered, a kind of shared pleasure in the completion of a job uh, where you can see the thing itself, a kind of metal mountain, perfectly made, even in all its ways, and then painted uh, actually a very bright grass green sort of colour, but it looked very good. And the whole plate shop came out to see it, to see it off, to see its departure, <laughs> the, the, uh, where it was going to work. And I, well, I, I really love trying to make a, a picture out of that. I find these illustrations. There's there's a lot of there's a lightness attached. There's a there's a feeling of light coming through them. It's they're not dark at all. But I find it very interesting. This novel that's about work, and at the same time, there's what you just mentioned: the pleasure, um, satisfaction taken in in observing that the final result and everything. And there's there's something for me that's shining through in these illustrations. Because the factory also is a place of color. Color is. I mean, there is the paint shop which paints all these machines made in smoky and dark and thunderous uh, cavernous places they are then painted uh, bright bright colors and so you, you've also got a sunny bright colored picture in the factory both of everything standing in the yard waiting to be delivered and it may be red or yellow or blue or green um, but also a lot of light I mean workers need light to to work and a lot exactly, of exactly yes yeah, yeah. Uh, the hopper itself the picture of this gigantic metal cone. It's true that when I drew that, I got a little uh, plastic sugar funnel that was about uh -huh. high, and I <laughs> carefully studied <laughs> the, way the light, the sunlight fell on it. Uh, uh -huh. that, that gets blown out big in that particular drawing. Yes. <laughs> the Plate Shop was your first novel. You mentioned chapters and scenes kept coming to you about the factory. Did these all link together naturally? Did you find the structure came naturally or did you have to do a lot of rewrites? How was the process? I think what really made the difference for me was when I heard what had happened to the factory, when it was taken over and what was likely to happen to most people there. And that really seemed to me, gave me uh, my story. And then everything came together and oh, I rewrite quite a lot. So and I was used to sort of taking from here and there and fitting things together as best I could. Uh, I'd have to say, I think that the factory, the novel as it stands now, covers only two days. And if one really totted them up, one might think more uh, unusual things happen in those two days than might really happen in two days of a factory. I, I hope that is not too noticeable and that the novel comes over as a kind of big picture of all the different things that can happen in a factory um, as to whether and I I mean I knew I was working really with a very serious situation both because the what happened to that factory in particular and I suppose looking back it seems to me also that the novel is a sort of time study of what happened to uh, British industry over those years and the passing of the old heavy industry giving way to the the service economy and the new world of high tech which is so different from the old iron world of the factories um, but although it was a serious subject i certainly enjoyed working on it um, what was less enjoyable 
was trying to find a publisher because I sent it around to lots of people. Uh, and the message that came back every time was fine, fine, nicely written, but people don't want to hear about factories or people don't want to read about factories. Who wants to read about work? Of course, it's all right reading about work in a police station or in a, uh, the kitchen of a stately home, but or people but or a university perhaps, but people don't want to read about work in a factory. Anyway, finally, uh, it was to, I'm very grateful to Collins for taking it, and they gave it good, good uh, support. And so, yeah, what was nice was that, it, having been as it were a reject for several years, it did then win a first novel prize, and also came out in paperback, and even was briefly on sale in supermarkets, which I'd never expected to be. Uh, and also, I had the nice experience in a way, funny, ambiguous experience, that when the BBC, a bit later, brought out a, a TV serial about a factory, which they called Bull, Bull Week, um, I did rather recognise certain things in it. There was a, a foreign workman who had a hard time with the factory authorities. And also, it began with a scene in which two workmen coming in early in the morning, look around the factory and find it almost beautiful. I mean, rather fascinating and great to see. And it did seem to me that picked up a little bit on uh, my first chapter, describing dawn just arriving inside inside a huge workshop. Did they include the poster of Marilyn Monroe? <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> it would be interesting. That would sort of... Are there scenes you find you can't write? What happens then? What is true is that the novel it, it describes the world of the factory as I knew it. That is to say, I saw people and knew them in their day their daytime world in the factory. I didn't see most of them in their homes. I don't know what went on in their homes. And it's true that I don't have much about the home life of Plato's because I didn't really want to try and invent something where I where I knew very little. But it's true that I also do present Foreman Clyde back home with his wife in, the, in bed at night with his wife when he's having to digest the big changes that are coming. And um, I was aware that this is a, a tricky scene. Um, and it's true that I also wanted it to move towards um, this elderly, uh, middle-aged to elderly couple making love and I didn't want to describe them making love but I tried to suggest that I was moving in that way that was a scene which I was shy of doing but in in the end I I did it as best I could the novel with a particular event or scene in the workshop which I saw only one time while I was there but it made a very strong impression on me and this was what the platers did when one of the platers was going to get married and basically they all got iron tools and gathered around the iron objects in the shop and made a noise and it had various implications. It was celebratory. Uh, 
an Australian workman who was there at the time I was, was amazed at the way they were hitting the iron and said to me, they're crazy in this place. He was quite amazed. Um, I've tried to describe such a ceremony, uh, a wedding ceremony, if you like, in the iron heart of the plate shop. But it's true that this ceremony, this ceremony here, comes at the close of the novel and something else is getting in to the hammering that the men are doing besides simply uh, one of their one of them getting married and hoping to have a, a, a good wedding night and a good life with his wife. The platers now did what they always did when a man in the shop was going to be married. They took their hammers, crowbars, monkey wrenches and pipes and stationed themselves beside drums and guards, containers, girders, the half-completed hopper. At a slight movement from Reynolds, they touched the metal in front of them and the entire shop vibrated to the low hum of reverberating steel. The hammers and crows knocked the iron again, and again harder, the new blows crashed on a strong booming that steadily grew. Presently the steel in the shop was not humming but roaring, and the roar grew, as though an ocean of sound poured through the shop. Each plater had his own time, and walloped as hard as he could on drums, bowls, hoods crammed solid with roaring echo. For the ceremony never had happened on this scale. Platers who didn't like Collier, or hardly knew him, hammered as though they hammered for life, their faces drawn, sweating, scowling with effort. The news of these days, of loss, a life gone, of grief, of anger, came into the hammering. From the enormous incomplete hopper came a deep, pulsing throb, like a great gong beaten continually, till from end to end the shop shivered and throbbed as though it were coming alive, and had a beating iron heart that could finally be heard, deafening other noise. Only, eventually, the hammering slackened. The noise broke up in sporadic blows and finally faltered to a ringing silence. The large doors at the end of the shop were open and, talking quietly, the men left the plate shop. Shop is published by Holland House Books and is available direct from the website, as well as Amazon, Waterstones, and all good bookstores. This was the Holland House Podcast. You have been listening to John Harvey in conversation with Julia Warren.